Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. I'm very excited for today's discussion because it's an opportunity, one, to, I think, share some kind of interesting perspectives with the broader community that I think, you know, are, are ones that we should be listening to and really taking some cues from at the moment. And two, it's just kind of fun to get to hang out with a client and kind of like a, a non-work, well, work-ish Work, work adjacent <laughs> time and just kind of get to chat about kind of what they do and why that's so important. So today I have with me Trevor Nielsen and Trevor is the general manager of the Bear River Canal Company up in the north part of Utah. And Trevor just has a fascinating job and I wanted him to come on and kind of tell us uh, what he's seen. So Trevor, could you give our listeners a little bit of a background of who you are and kind of how you came to Bear River Canal Company? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> my name's Trevor Nelson. Um, I'm the general manager of the Bear River Canal Company. Uh, I've been with the company, let's see, I started in September of 18. So we're headed into our fourth operating season. Um, we just started our canal, our first canal up uh, yesterday and the day before. And that was kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. We uh, are located, our office is in Tremont, but we service most of the east side of Box Elder County. Our service area services roughly 68,000 acres of productive farm ground here in Box Elder County through five different main canals and five lateral canals. We Our diversion is generally around 900 cubic feet per second or about 403,000 gallons per minute. And for um, listeners, I just want just to flag there for a second. 900 CFS per second is a huge amount of water. It is a small river that comes out of the bottom of Cutler Dam to feed the system that Trevor is describing. You know, just some context. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's one of the bigger canal systems in the Western United States. We're kind of the smallest of the big guys, so to speak. But we have 126 miles of canals. And then our shareholders in this system generally take the water from the canal and have their distribution ditches. So there's hundreds of miles of ditches that are associated with our system, but we directly control and manage 126 miles. Mm-hmm. So some of the big things we're dealing with in our area are the area is starting to grow. Tremont and, Bear- and Brigham City area are kind of the edge of the Losage sprawl at the moment. And so we're seeing some growth and that comes with some opportunities as well as difficulties for a canal system. Another thing that we're dealing with is a drought. It Mm -hmm. uh, has particularly become bad the last couple of years, as most of the listeners are aware. We also are um, having to change. Uh, Agriculture, the average farm size keeps increasing. And so uh, we're having to accommodate shareholders who are dealing with having to run more and more acreage. As a result, we're trying to modernize our system. Labor is one of our biggest concerns, uh, trying to get qualified labor as well as provide a quality of life for our employees so that we can keep them Mm -hmm. in this competitive job market. And so we've taken on some pretty aggressive modernization tasks and uh, master planning, and not only from the water savings perspective, but also for the, uh, for the management of, uh, our system and the longevity of our system to keep it staffed and to provide a high quality of life for the employees that uh, we're fortunate enough to have at Bear River Canal. Yeah. Well, okay. One, that's a wonderful, wonderful introduction. And I feel like you've done a very good job uh, putting the good pieces together. Good. That's a good elevator pitch. 
so many things in here, Trevor, because I, I think, you know, almost going backward, backwards from what you, what you just, you know, stated is that, you know, the area in which you operate is changing and that's bringing up so many new and unique and novel questions. And so I think it's really interesting to, one of the things that I, I feel like is a good place to have some discussion is, you know, we talk a lot in the water user community about like ag optimization. And we talk a lot about like, you know, converting to like LEPA sprinkler systems and, and you know, kind of asking a lot of the agricultural community to participate in the water discussion because, you know, here in the state of Utah, 75, 80% of our water is in agriculture and that produces tons of crops and economy, but it is a large chunk of water. And so we we have a lot of talks about agriculture. And so I think it's really important to talk to folks who have to make decisions on the ground about some of the policy decisions that we're making, because I think it's interesting to you know hear about how much money that's going to cost or how many hours that's going to cost for somebody. And so maybe starting kind of from like your next point about modernization, when you're trying to look at modernizing your system, like what are some of the issues you're trying to address? Like we talk about the buzzword of flexibility a lot. What does that mean to you? Like how are you going to modify your system to be more flexible? Well, one of the base challenges is that our demands are changing our system. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, we were we service fairly small farms compared to now. Many, many users and now we're um, having to accommodate large users that uh, aren't necessarily being the irrigators themselves. They have staff that is employed to do that, as well as now we're starting to service cities and um, individual homeowners, little ranchette style homes have become really popular in this area. And so switching from individuals who this is their livelihood, they are the owners of the ground, which this water is applied to, to more of people who this, you know, the ranchette individuals, this isn't their livelihood with the city. This is, we provide secondary water and this is just another utility to them. And they have some expectations as far as the consistency of that. And then with our bigger farmers, the issues we're dealing with, with their staff instead of them directly. And that can be a good thing. And that can also be a hard thing to deal with. It's just a little bit different. So much of our modernization is really driven by need. So one of the things we're doing is uh, we're implementing a telemetry and automation system throughout the system. And uh, as part of that, we went through and of all the sites throughout the system, we are choosing, you know, what is most critical? What points give us the most, best quantitative and qualitative data for operations? How can we make this so that our ditch riders, when they get a a phone call indicating a problem, they can look at some of this technology and be able to confirm an issue or be able to adjust on the fly um, rather than having to run across our system. Because it does take about 30 to 45 minutes to go across our system north to south and about 30 minutes east to west. So it can be some time if there's a problem. And this automation not only gives us that instant reaction time, but it also makes it so that things are safer. We're having to deal with homes where there were open fields. And so if our canal over tops rather than a free irrigation, uh, people don't like logs <laughs> in their basement too much. <laughs> so on that system then, Trevor, to kind of give you some of that security and kind of give you that information for operations, of your 126 miles of canals, how many separate like little telemetry stations is that going to result in? Like, you know, what? how many little critical places are you actually going to install instrumentation? Somewhere between 600 and 700. 
Whoa, individual places? Yeah. So we have we have 530 individual diversion points or head gates throughout our system. And our Isn't that terrible? I didn't know that. I just sounded really surprised for the public right there. <laughs> but go ahead. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, it, it's it's when people get down into the nuts and bolts and the, the gears yep. of the system, they just don't realize how many moving parts there are and how amazing it is that it actually works with this little technologies we've been able to, or that we have right now. Okay. So then if you're going to install these at 600 places, Trevor, what are you installing? Like, what is it actually like, what is the little pieces? Are they just like sensors or kind of like you as the canal company operator? Like what are, what is installing that system look like to you? So of the 600 to 700 sensors, 530 will go on the individual diversion points. And that simply gives us kind of an on off switch for the gates, which we don't have um, great measurement capabilities on. And for those that we do, it'll give us a live flow reading. And that's something that the state really politically has been encouraging the ag community to push on. And we're seeing that, you know, if it follows the trends that are happening with secondary water, we want to be ready so that if we're required to to measure every diversion point, we're already halfway or three quarters of the way through the process, not getting caught flat footed. Mm -hmm. So that's where the bulk of them are. So it's a sensor, an air sensor that uses radar and it essentially reads down to the surface of the water. And then you calibrate that to a a staff gauge or essentially a measuring tape that's on the side of the ditch. And that can tell, you know, is it on, is it off? And if it does have a control control structure or measurement structure, you can use that number and put it into the equation and it'll give you the flow that's being utilized at that point. Now the remaining, you know, 150 to 200 sites are actual control infrastructure. So items like in the canal, every so often, the uh, we have these structures we call check structures that auto- artificially back the water up in the canal so that the water is physically high enough to be pushed out of the headgate structures. And so into, uh, when I was a little kid, Trevor, can I tell you a quick story? We had this canal next to our house growing up and it was always my favorite time of year where the farmer put the super fancy check structure of like basically a big blue tarp and a couple two by fours. <laughs> And he thought that was how they backed up the canal. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, some of these in the canal system, they're more permanent, but in individual ditches, that's still the practice in the canvas dam or it's, they're actually plastic now, but we still call them canvas dams. Yep. But these are not your check structures. Your check structures are lovely. They're like welded. They're like metal. They like come up and down. Right. Well, most of them are concrete with uh-huh. right now they have uh, checkboards in there or just large pieces of lumber that essentially allow you to control the elevation. Some of them we do have moving steel structures that can, they call it a weir plate, but a small one is about $10,000 to install okay. or the smallest ones we have anyways. And our big ones are fifty to $75,000. So they're big pieces of infrastructure. You have 150 of those? I don't know. I can't remember the exact number. I'd have to pull out my notes, but it's, it's in excess of a hundred. And, and so, so is that, what's the, t- what's kind of the estimated price total on that for you guys as your system? So I'd have to go back and look at, again, the details of everything, but the whole system is about $7 million. Okay. And then um, we're just kind of, it's like eating an elephant. You take it a bite at a time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's two needs that need to really be met for us in this modernization project. First of all, these old check structures are pioneer-esque structures. I mean, the old ones, that, the concrete ones we're tearing out, we're finding the old redwood 
wooden check structures underneath them. So they literally poured these on top of the pioneer era structures. And so we're taking all that back out and replacing them. But are you, you know, taking cool pictures? We are taking quite a few pictures. I mean, okay. we, the other day we pulled out a timber that was probably 20 or 30 feet long and 18 inches by 18 inches. Did you keep it? And I hope it uh, went somewhere cool. Someone's like yeah, doing something with it. Uh, <laughs> we haven't moved it yet because, you know, that's not a board you throw in the back of your truck and drive it to the okay. office. We'll talk yeah. later. We'll talk offline about this big board. <laughs> but, uh, and it's interesting. Some of the wood is just beautifully preserved. Yeah. Um, so you hate ripping it out, but you know, you got to do your job too. So mm-hmm. we've been replacing some of these and then the concrete structures are just have worn too. I mean, this is a constant load system, which means once we turn on, on May 1st, we stay at load until the end of the irrigation season. So usually about 180 days a year. And so the concrete literally is wearing away. Mm-hmm. And so we've got this issue. It's more of a maintenance issue of these checks need to be replaced. Mm-hmm. So there are roughly 65,000 shares. And so if you were- Hey, Trevor, can I stop you just for one second though, before we, I think I know where you're going with the 65,000 shares. I just want to repeat something for people to understand, because I think this is really important. You guys are the largest irrigation system in the state of Utah, if not in the inner, one of the ones in the Intermountain West, you're the smallest of the big guys. And so for you to put a full telemetry system on your on your system, your 126 miles of canals, which is going to have about 600 or 700 sensors, most of them on just like the points of diversion, but about 150 that are actually control structures, is going to cost $7 million. So when we ask, you know, and look at ag to modernize and ag optimization, like that's, that is a price point that people can think about. Like it's, it is not cheap. $7 million is a lot of money. And that seems like it is actually cheap and we'll see what happens to like inflation and everything like that. But I think it's important for people to kind of understand what the scope of projects we're asking people to undertake are sometimes well, but go ahead remember <laughs> about what we're talking about costs is our annual budget's right in the neighborhood of two million dollars per year mm-hmm. and so we assess our shareholders essentially a user's fee we call assessments mm-hmm. and so you know one of these big check structures if it's sixty five thousand dollars and i have sixty five thousand shares that means every time i replace one of these it's a dollar an acre for my users. And so it's a lot of infrastructure to have to replace. Mm -hmm. And so we have seen though, that there really is a synergistic opportunity here. And that is, is that the state and uh, the federal government, as well as just the populace in general, really supports us as such large water users modernizing. And so what we're able to do is the money that we would have already spent to replace these large structures that's what we use for our in-kind money um, or not our in-kind money, but our match money for these grants that we've been applying for. But to qualify for the grants, you can't just, it's not for maintenance items, it's for modernization. And so we're really able to get two birds with one stone in the fact that we're replacing these structures that are already in need of repair or replacement. And we're adding this new management system, these new gates that manage the elevation of the canal and measure flow. And uh, it's just an example of how if you think things through and plan things out, especially with the funding opportunities and water there are now, this mm-hmm. is a great time to look towards updating and modernizing your system as an agriculturalist. Yeah, and that's something to hit on, right? Like, so here we here in the city of Utah for those listeners, I think that you have 
I think that the ARPA money is already gone for the first round, but the Utah Division of Agriculture is giving a, a second round of grants in July to companies who want to do conservation projects. And so, you know, that's, you know, we'll have a whole thing about that. But you're right, there's a lot of money on the table right now for doing big projects and a lot of interest and not just money from like federal stimulus, like also like interest from corporate interests and interest from like, you know, um, you know, municipal collaborations. Like there's a whole bunch of, you know, interest in, in kind of working on these systems. Well, and I uh, also from the private sector, I mean, yep. mm-hmm. uh, you'll have to publish this uh, podcast after the 10th of May because. I, uh, oh, now I'll have to hold it. <laughs> okay, 10th of May. But I just wanted to share, we mm-hmm. received a $230,000 grant from a group called the Bonneville Environmental Fund that Procter & Gamble was a contributor to, and they helped us buy some of these automated structures. Their, their purpose was uh, they want to see some of the environmental users in our system really thrive in this water scarce environment. And we saw some synergistic opportunities. And so we tied that into the funding portfolio of what we're trying to do on the macro side of things. And it's interesting how this intersects and the fact that some of those unloading points for stormwater are some of those critical first sites that we indicated are, are needed to, uh, to manage our system more effectively and safely. And so it's a great opportunity to, uh, to, you know, marry the two ideas together. And so we just really appreciate Bonneville Environmental Fund and Procter & Gamble for, for seeing a need and, and being so generous with their contributions to us because uh, that makes it so that we can, can make things happen. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's an interesting environment. I mean, federal grants generally and state grants all have match requirements. And so you, as a grant individual, you, you work at matching your federal dollars against state dollars so that you can stretch what you have available in your match money as far as possible. And so when people, when we can get money from the private sector, that really leverages up our ability to apply for some of these state and federal grants. And so it's really valuable money because it opens up so many opportunities for us. Yeah. This year alone, that one grant made it so we could do five times more than we had originally anticipated we would be able to do. They're accelerators, mm-hmm. multipliers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've actually on the podcast had Todd Reeves on from Bonneville Environmental Foundation. Um, and he, like, it is a really cool project. So they're going to announce the official uh, award of those funds on May 10th. So you're committed yeah. to wait till May 10th to <laughs> before you can publish this. <laughs> Okay. I can do that. I've committed. I've committed. <laughs> cool. Very exciting. Okay. I have one other question for you. That's kind of a technical question about why these investments make sense for us from a practical perspective. You know, I think you're right on about the, you know, you're doing the maintenance anyway, you know, you need it for safety and security, you need flooding. But one of the things that I've been talking about, or, you know, I've had several on twice now as Matt Yost from Utah State University to talk about the Ag Optimization Task Force and what they're learning. And part, you know, they've studied kind of a variety of things about agricultural production, but one of the things they thought they studied was operational changes, like not just focusing so much on just like new sprinklers and, you know, that kind of stuff and like laser leveling, but just like thinking about like how and how and when our water gets there and moving to an on-demand system is most is, is one of the ways that they found saves water. Does installing this big modernization project help you guys move to an on-demand system of sorts? Um, yes, and 
Not all the way, but yes, to an extent. So the gates that we're installing in the canal that are quite spendy, they um, can do quite a few things. They can measure the flow through the area. So what's passing over the structure. They can manage the upstream elevation of that pool that's on the upstream side of the check, or they can manage the downstream side of the pool. And once the system is fully built out, this, the company that we're using, um, it's called uh, Rubicon Water, they have a what they call their total t- channel control system or TCC system. And the idea is that once you have one of these indicators on every structure throughout the system, you can have the pool of water below it draw from the pool above it for its needs. Or if it has excess. Oh, almost like locks. Right. Just like, exactly. It's just like locks. And then when you are surpassing your needs, the upstream gate will close a little bit. And then it's then upstream of it will close a little bit. And it's just a chain reaction that moves water up the system. And so as long as you have some areas where you can essentially hold that water or short-term temporary storage, then you can actually move to making your orders from the river. So water orders from Cutler Dam match your actual demand. Because right now what we have to do is we have to estimate what demand is going to be mm-hmm. and then bring down what we think we need. And then sometimes we don't make deliveries and there's people on the ends of the canals without water. And other times there's water that spills off the end. And that is, you know, the industry's, the industry's norm in open canal um, systems is about 10% loss of just water um, not getting used because it runs out the ends or is utilized out of turn by other farm or yeah, just waste essentially. And some folks too, and this is because this word comes up in our discussions and I think it's helpful to define things when an opportunity comes up. And this relates to the word of carrier water for those who are talking about carrier water, where in a system, you know, you could have like, we'll just say a 10 mile canal and you've got the waters, you know, the water users who are diverting at mile one and mile two, it's very easy to get the water to them, but to get the water all the way with sufficient, you know, flow and velocity, you have to have more water in the canal. And so in some water rights, you know, there's a question about how carrier water is built into water rights, which is an interesting question for kind of unpacking the conserved water or the safe water or the optimized water from a legal perspective but go on carrier water <laughs> and wastewater <laughs> i mean some of this wastewater it's not truly wasted i mean and it does get used by downstream users so we're not wasting water it's just not being used by us and so the thing that's that a lot of people don't understand is that there's a timing delay as well so when we turn water in at the top of our system it takes 24 hours for it to get to the last user on the very end of the system, 20 hours of 24 hours of travel time. And with these locks or this total canal control system, it makes it so you can cut that time down to an hour or two hours. What? Wait a minute. You're going to go from 24 hours. I feel like I'm embarrassed that I don't know more about your own project, (laughs) but you're going to take it from 24 hours to one to two hours across 126 miles. That's a lot, Trevor. And those are just the smaller changes. I mean, if I have to shut the canal off, I still am going to have 24 hours of drain and things like that. But because this opens up so many options, because it it creates storage as well. If you can 
if you can, if you have an, an automated system that you're like, Hey, we have too much water at the end. It's going to say, well, I can, I can store it in this in 10 checks upstream. And all I got to do is add one inch of elevation while we make an adjustment from the top of the canal. Mm-hmm. And so you save that water, you hold it higher and then you release it down as demand requires it. And so it helps you more fully utilize your system. It but just, can I add something right in there, Trevor, for a second that to connect mm-hmm. why it matters though from, and, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. This is what I understand from Matt, Matt Yost. While why it matters to have you to have the ability to deliver it, you know, from one hour opposed to, you know, 24 hours is because, you know, in a traditional irrigation system, everybody's on time turns. So, you know, you open your gate for so many hours every so many days, and that's like you get so many per summer. And so your watering is very critical. The date you water is very critical. But what, from my understanding from Matt, is some of these new irrigation systems could be more on-demand systems so that like it's either less water over a period of time. So it's kind of the the way to get the water supply available when you need it to kind of do those irrigation practices is either to do to build on-site storage per per you know per field a little bit more so they can have more like internal demand or to get irrigation company systems to operate more like an on-demand service. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. I was like, huh, that seems like a very big task. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, Matt, as well as uh, another professor at Utah State, I'll remember it as soon as we're off this call. But anyway, the, the drip tape is a perfect example. It's super efficient. But on our system, you get a block of water every seven days, and then the cycle repeats. So once a week, you have a scheduled time that gets you a certain amount of water. And with the uh, drip tape systems, they're realizing that they use less water, but they need it more frequently. They need it every, you know, maybe three or four days for a shorter period of time. And so with this on-demand ability that this can create, um, my hope is to eventually be able to create a hybrid system. I don't think we'll ever be able to do a true on-demand system simply because our system is too, uh, it was built exactly the size that it needed to be. Mm-hmm. And so by horse I, and by horse, can we just remember this <laughs> built by the size is supposed to be by horse and plow <laughs> towards the end. They did have steam shovels, but you know, a lot of this was still manual labor Yeah, to build That's them it. today would be hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my hope is that someday we can provide our share shareholders a hybrid service. And the fact that each week, they have a certain amount that is pre-scheduled and will come on the schedule and they have a certain amount that they can ask for or order on demand. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, that, that'll be an interesting, you know, whether half the water is scheduled and half the water is available on demand. Uh, there's also some constraints as far as what happens after it leaves our system and the private farmer ditches that have to be dealt with. And that might be even the larger barrier to deal with than mm-hmm. the canal itself. Mm-hmm. And so that's some of the things we're thinking mm-hmm. about, but we are trying to provide a more flexible system. Another thing to think about is when you have a storm event, canals for the most part act as the, sto- as the flood conduits for a lot of the valleys in Utah. And so you have a storm event, the sheet flows don't go just right down to the river. They typically are picked up by a canal um, or a drainage system of some kind and delivered down to the natural waterways. And so with autonomous control, we'll have a better idea of how fast we should cut water out at the dam, making it so that the system runs safer, as well as downstream, we can prevent areas from overtopping. Because right now you drop your checkboards in the check 
at the proper elevation when things are running normal, when all the head gates are on and when there's no storm water entering. Then a storm happens and the head gates typically turn off because the farmers aren't in need of the water or are physically unable to get to the field because of the muddy soil conditions. And then you have this additional water. So not only did your, your demand drop, but your supply drastically increases. And so these autonomous gates, mm-hmm. they can simply open more to pass that flow versus now it's somewhat of a, of a, of a well, you're running around with your hair on fire for about two days during a storm and your employees are running around trying to yank checkboards out. And, you know, it's not like you've got time to calculate how much it's going to go this way. A lot of it has to be done by feel. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you're wrong and sometimes you're right. And most of the time they're right. They, you know, the longer they do it, the better they get at it. But, uh, you know, if you guess wrong in the past, you flood, you know, a farmer get a free irrigation. Now okay. I'm going to be filling basements full of water and that's not really too popular of a. <laughs> no, it's a terribly <laughs> expensive way to operate things. Let's not yeah. do that. Let us not flood basements. <laughs> But I think, I mean, basically you're saying like with this automated system, you can kind of evacuate the water early to make space for flood, for storm flows. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that another, this is why I think canal companies are so interesting because they're really at the forefront of so many of like, they're kind of a microcosm of, of many, many issues like drought and supply and water quality. And they're all kind of in the same thing. Because um, one of the one of the things one of the more interesting comments that I think I've heard in the last year is actually one that you said at a, a Utah Water Task Force meeting once, where we were talking about this conveyance of stormwater into irrigation canals. And we here in the state of Utah have, you know, actually a pretty canal-heavy statute that tries to privilege the canals because they've been there for a long time, and you know, allocate joint responsibility for light um, for costs or if, if you convey stormwater. But they don't really address kind of some of the contemporary issues. And one of that is water quality. And you had mentioned earlier in the meeting that, you know, if we're going to ask people to do things differently, then we want as many options on the table and how some of your shareholders had wanted to go to organic and, and grow a higher value crop, like per dollar, you know, dollar per acre crop. And to do so that you, we would need to certify that our water met those kind of standards. And it was a question about like a very interesting question about, what the future of that, you know, municipal stormwater slash irrigation company canal system looks like. Cause I thought, you know, that's a big concern. Like we don't also want to, <laughs> and I guess the solution is like upstream, you know, working with division of, you know, water quality and stuff on like, you know, bioswells and stuff. But I thought that was an interesting comment. Well, and even, you know, you pointed to organic, but onion certification for conventionally produced onions requires a water quality test now. And so, uh, you know, some people say, well, that's just a, a niche market. You know, they can grow that elsewhere if that's really a concern here. It, no, it's it's becoming mainstream. Really, anything that's for direct human consumption, um, my shareholders are reporting that it's becoming harder. Like there's just a lot more requirements, whether it's milk from a dairy or uh, onions in the field. Uh, if it's consumed by humans, pollutants are, are becoming more and more regulated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a hard problem to solve in a barrel. Like I think that that like that problem is not necessarily solved looking at the hard infrastructure of how stormwater and, and irrigation water interact. I mean, yes, it is. A lot of it is. 
but it's like looking at, you know, on-site treatment at, you know, for like new building requirements. Like we have those low impact building requirements now here in the state of Utah that require like, you know, retention ponds for so many acre, you know, acres and new subdivisions, I think require it. But like, it's really, you know, it's that intersection of land use and water planning. You know, if our land use can account for stormwater and keep it and treat it on site, we have less of an impact to our waterways and systems, which include canals that grow food for people to eat. There's a lot of ways you could address that, which I think is interesting. And But I think a coming problem as we continue to have, you know, increasing urbanization in these rural areas. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it just shows that there's a real opportunity there, because if we can, through these ponds, these holding basins, if the uh, undesirable contents does settle out in those settling basins, mm-hmm. the remaining water that's left behind, that's water that the canal company is fine putting to beneficial use. Mm-hmm. connecting to those systems but you have to have contracts and understandings and and standards as far as these settling ponds go so you can guarantee those type of results and that's kind of where we're at right now is we don't allow any of this essentially asphalt or hardscape type water into our system because of the pollutants at this point but in the future through agreements we think that uh, there could be some opportunities there for us to to utilize that water and and make it so that we as a user are not as dependent on storage mm-hmm. and really able to utilize the water that nature does every once in a while give us. Some of our board members are convinced it may never rain again. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the problem, Trevor. It's going to like not rain for like three years and then one year and four years from now, it's going to never stop raining. <laughs> Like, that's the problem because we're like, this is an interesting fact about Utah. So we sit right on the jet stream, northern Utah. And so kind of if it's La Nina or El Nino and what's happening with the jet stream and the atmosphere really dictates kind of like what was going to happen to us with climate change. Like if if it swings low, we're going to get really wet. If it stays high, we're going to be really high and dry. And so we also have the opportunity to have some pretty you know robust water years too, potentially, but they're going to be few and far between and we need to be able to take advantage of them when we can. Well, that's one thing that's really difficult about Utah is, um, you know, some areas they can strongly forecast water availability because of consistency, but Utah is not one of those places. I mean, we all saw that last year where we were coming off decent reservoir levels from the year before, although it had been pretty severe drought, the reservoirs weren't as bad throughout most of the state, but last year just really kicked everybody in the teeth and caught us all flat footed. It's also interesting to see because we're on that split, um, we as a state don't always have the same results. So what I mean is we may be in severe drought in northern Utah, but southern Utah may be having a a banner year because we're on that slipstream. Makes it really difficult for water policymakers because you can be in a year of plenty in one half the state and absolutely flat on your face on the other half of the state. What do you do as a policymaker? <laughs> you just try and figure out as many flexible solutions as possible. <laughs> just make sure everybody's playing with a full deck of things that they can do. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's going to be, I mean, it's, I mean, I just think the future is an all hands on deck, all tools in the, in the tool chest kind of a time. <laughs> mm-hmm.
Yeah. Well, Trevor, this has been fantastic. I, you know, I, this was, I think, I think our listeners will find this really helpful and useful just to kind of talk about the brass tacks of this. I mean, the Bear River Canal Company is just a fascinating company and we'll have you on at some point in time to talk about like the, you know, Bear Lake storage and, and kind of like our water right side of things. Cause that's just also a very interesting backstory and um, kind of like a, a cool, a cool thing to talk about, but this first, this was great for today. And um is there anything you want to let our listeners know before we sign off? Um, pray for rain. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. did save us last year, actually, though. So whatever happened in, in like August, someone did something and it, it did rain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so we'll that's, see. That's what you'll hear every canal manager say is pray for rain or pray for snow. Yeah, that's what we need to, to keep it going. So, right. All right, Trevor, well, we'll be in touch. Okay. Well, thank you. You have a nice day.